the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the Daily Show Prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Everybody, I am your guest host for today, Amala Epinobi. I know what you were thinking. Dennis sounds awfully feminine today, but it is a female indeed. Amala Epinobi of PragerU. For those of you who don't know me, I am 22 years old and I'm currently working at PragerU as I guess we'll call it a PragerU personality. I host a show called Unapologetic Live, which you guys can check out by going on any social media platform, any podcast platform, and you'll find me there. I guess my claim to this job is having been a former leftist and going through a wake-up phase where I realized my beliefs might be more conservative than I once thought. I was raised in a left-leaning household, went through a wake-up call around 17 and 18, and then started to talk about that transitional period in my life on the internet, on uh, an app known as TikTok, which I know is is not very well liked, especially here in America. But I started telling my story on TikTok, talking about my political ideas, leanings, how I was feeling about different issues. And those videos took off because I happen to be a biracial female who is uh, a-religious and tattooed. So I'm not uh, normally what you think of when you think conservative or right of center. So a lot of people had a lot to say about those videos that I was posting on the internet and they took off, as I said before. And I guess today I'll start off by telling the story of how I met Dennis Prager because I knew of him far before he knew who I was. When I was going through this period of learning where I lied politically, I did what any young person would do and I was searching on the internet for videos. And I went searching on the internet not really to find differing perspectives from what I was thinking, but to reinforce what I had already believed. One narrative in particular that I was completely entrenched in was this idea that the police were systemically racist. So I hopped on the internet to, again, affirm that belief and find the stats to back up how I felt about it. And I found a PragerU five-minute video titled Cops Are the Good Guys. And this five-minute video was hosted uh, by Sheriff David Clark, who happens to be a black police officer and sheriff. And I watched this video where he debunked a lot of the ideas that I held around policing and systemic racism and where he spoke through his own personal experience about what it was like to be a police officer. And I thought, 
oh, wow, <laughs> I might be wrong about this issue. Where do I look next? And I went down this rabbit hole of watching PragerU five-minute videos. And of course, I was then introduced to Dennis Prager with his low bass-filled voice and just saw somebody who had wisdom for me. And I kept watching his videos. I watched his debates that he had back and forth. I watched interviews that he did and was eventually introduced to Larry Elder and Dave Rubin and Thomas Sowell. So many great thinkers who were willing to engage with me, of course, through the internet about these different ideas and beliefs that I was holding at the time. So I watched these videos, gained perspective, and gained new ideas as far as where I lied politically and decided to share that on the internet. And as I said, on TikTok, I blew up uh, incidentally because of how I look and, and the message that I was putting out. And one day I got a message on Instagram from a person who was working here at PragerU. Her name is Sabrina and she is an amazing woman and mother. And she reached out to me after having seen my videos and said, you know what, I would love to hop on a call with you to talk about your story and so that you can get to know PragerU and join this little somewhat of a youth group that they had called Prager Force, which is still exists to this day. If you're a young person right now listening who wants to find community, I recommend Prager Force. I called Sabrina, told her my story in a few minutes, and she said, you know what? I think you'd be great for a series we have called Stories of Us, where we get people to come and tell their life's story and uh, where they got involved with conservative beliefs and principles. And I thought, that sounds like a great idea. I've never been to Los Angeles. I would love to come out and tell my story. So she pitched me for this video series. They took her up on the offer. And within a few weeks, I was on a flight to Los Angeles. And I got here. It was supposed to be a very quick two-day trip where I met everybody who was working at PragerU, filmed my story, and then headed back. And at the time, they were doing this casting call to find a new personality for the organization. And I show up, I tell my story and stories of us. I was horrible in front of the camera, in my opinion. Just so nervous, nervous beyond belief. It was nothing I'd ever done before. I was so used to being, you know, a 20-year-old who just sat in her room talking to her cell phone and posting it on TikTok. And suddenly, I was surrounded by a group of people working in production and getting my makeup done and all these different things. So... I told my story. Apparently it went well, and I met the CEO of PragerU, Marissa Streit, while, while telling that story. And eventually they decided, okay, let's pitch this girl for the casting call and see if she'd be wanting to work here as a personality. And of course I took them up on the offer. There was no way I was going to decline taking a job like this and just having this opportunity sit in front of me. And they said, you know what, tomorrow on your trip, first thing in the morning, we'd love for you to be on Dennis Prager's radio show. And I was sweating, <laughs> so nervous. Dennis was a man I had only ever watched through my screen and had such profound wisdom. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to sit in front of him and talk to him about my beliefs. And, and these beliefs are fresh uh, in, in the timeline of my life. But I woke up the next morning, I got ready. Sabrina picked me up and we drove to the radio station and I came in 
and it was during COVID, so Dennis had plexiglass up in his uh, studio where he was filming, which he hated, by the way. <laughs> and he made it very clear. He stood up, this towering six-foot-something man, and that low bass voice that I had always heard said hello to me, and he stepped right from behind the plexiglass and said, I hate this thing. I, I, I like to meet people in person. I like to talk to you face to face. He shook my hand and we sat down and had a conversation about my life. And for any of you who have ever spoken to Dennis, especially if you are a young woman, Dennis always wants to know your dating status. He wants to know if you're married, you're single, what you got going on. Do you have a love life? And he immediately went there uh, with me as he does because Dennis is a, a matchmaker and is constantly looking for for people to link you up with. And I thought, wow, this man is exactly how he presents himself on the radio. He is no different than uh, the man that I'd seen in these videos. And we sat and talked for a few minutes. And after that, I head back to the PragerU office and ended up accepting a job offer to work here. And I've been here ever since. We're going over two years now. And it has been just such a ride having gone through this journey and now being somebody who I hope open-mindedly shares my background and where I'm at and covers news and everything that's happening right now, it's, it's very humbling to have that experience and to think that Dennis has been doing it for decades and decades and decades, uh, not to age him too much. <laughs> it's just an amazing thing. And he's given me great pieces of wisdom in guiding me down this path that I'm on because, of course, he was on a similar one. I was 20 when I got the job uh, here at PragerU. Dennis was 20 when he started touring and speaking to people all over the world about communism and what he had learned in his studies. He was having a very similar experience to the experience that I'm having now. And one of the best things that he's ever told me is, Amla, don't let the hate go to your heart and don't let the compliments and the love go to your head. You know what? Sew that on a pillow. That's that's a great saying. <laughs> and Dennis Brigger shared that with me early on in my career, and I will never forget that moment. He is a great man, which is why you all listen to him every morning, and I, I completely understand it. There's nothing like wisdom being shared from somebody who truly is having your, your best interest at heart and trying to share that with you. Now, if you'd like to check out some of the work that I do, you can go to PragerU.com. Or like I said, you can find my podcast called Unapologetic Live really anywhere on the internet, but especially on your podcast platforms, YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts. That's where you'll find me. I am fresh to this side of, of political thinking and, and philosophy and, and these values. So I'm constantly exploring, finding new things, and trying to see the light in some of the crazy news and the twisted stories that we get every single day. It can be hard to keep up, so I try my best to do that for you all and all who watch the show. You can check it out by going to PragerU.com, and if you'd like to support the content that we make at PragerU, the content that changed my mind, you can go to PragerU.com slash Natural disasters 
airline cancellations and runway near misses, supply chain issues, inflation, rising interest rates, and sky-high government debt. This is Dennis Prager for AmFed Coin and Bullion. There's a lot in the news about what consumers cannot control, so let's talk about what you can control. You can control how you choose to invest and protect your wealth. That's why I choose to do business with Nick Grovich and his company, AmFed Coin and Bullion. Now is a great time to own tangible assets like gold, silver, and platinum. With over 41 years' experience and tens of thousands of satisfied clients, Nick will help you make informed decisions and show you smart choices, which have been proven winners time and time again. AmFed Coin and Bullion? will sell you the right types of precious metals to get the maximum value for your money. Take control of your investments like I did. Call Nick and his team at AmFed Coin and Bullion at 800-221-7694. AmericanFederal.com, AmericanFederal.com. All right, we're back. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi from PragerU. I don't know if you all are hooked on to, to Netflix or you're watching on any of these streaming services, but there's been some recent controversy surrounding a new show that they put out titled Queen Cleopatra. Now, this show, Queen Cleopatra, was executive produced by none other than Jada Pinkett Smith, who is uh, Will Smith's wife, and it was meant to be what they called a historical documentary about Queen Cleopatra, her life, her influence. Now, if any of you got the chance to watch some of this show or maybe watch even the trailer surrounding this show, you'll find that a completely different tale was spun about Queen Cleopatra. They casted a black actress to play Queen Cleopatra, even though there is little to no evidence uh, that Queen Cleopatra would have been a, a black woman. They ran with this idea and again, deemed this show to be a historical documentary. That's important. Because they didn't put this out and say that this is a piece of fiction. They called this a docu-series. Now, they uh, casted an actress by the name of Adele James. And that wasn't the only sort of creative liberty they took in telling the story of Queen Cleopatra. They also spoke about uh, feminist influence in her background and sort of this idea of being a mother of nations. They also had a woman referenced in the documentary who spoke about her time in school learning about Queen Cleopatra. And then she then came home to her grandmother and her grandmother said, I don't care what they tell you in school. Queen Cleopatra was a black woman. So you can tell there's clearly a narrative being spun here. For those of you who don't know, Queen Cleopatra was of Greek descent uh, and of course, resided in Egypt, learned Egyptian ways, started uh, speaking the language, uh, practicing a lot of their religious traditions in Egypt. So, of course, a lot of Egyptians and Greek people came to bat and said, we are very upset about the portrayal of Queen Cleopatra. You are stepping on our history. You are changing everything about what we know about Queen Cleopatra, and you are, in a sense, promoting a revisionist history of her tale. Now, this is not new to Hollywood, and especially streaming services like Netflix. They have been known to race-swap characters, and we've been dealing with this for, for quite some time, uh, where... You saw Tinkerbell was, is now played by a black actress. The Little Mermaid, which I believe comes out this weekend, has been race-swapped for a black actress. Queen Charlotte, another show that they have on Netflix, where they have Queen Charlotte of mecklenburg Strelitz being portrayed as a black woman. Now, the difference between those three uh 
projects that I just mentioned and Queen Cleopatra is that those three projects are being called fiction. Queen Cleopatra is being called a historical documentary. Now, of course, they have got a lot of heat for having made this choice and for having casted an actress in this light and for a lot of the other narratives that they've spun during this show. Their Rotten Tomatoes, which is a popular rating website for films and shows, they have a 3% audience score, which means people were not happy about this whatsoever. Now, the actress who was cast as Queen Cleopatra did respond to some of the criticism in a recent interview. She says, well, firstly, blackwashing isn't a thing, is it? So there's that. (laughs) And we'll pause there and respond to that. We are so often accused on the conservative end of the spectrum of whitewashing history or making things whiter than they actually were. Yet in modern day Hollywood, it is totally fine to race swap historical figures, fictional figures, all in the name of inclusivity and diversity. But can we not call that blackwashing? It is essentially exactly what has happened. If you switch an actress that Uh, by all intensive purposes, should have been played by a Greek or Egyptian person, you switch that for a black person and start spinning the tale that Queen Cleopatra was black, you are, in fact, blackwashing history. Her quote goes on to say, I just think, you know, it's really sad to me the extent to which people want to, and it's not just Egyptians, it's not all Egyptians, but people want to colonize and remove, and it's just upsetting. I find it sad that people are either so self-loathing or so threatened by blackness that they feel the need to do that, to separate Egypt from the rest of the continent. You know, I think it's even more important that with the telling of the story the way that we are, because actually, we don't know. It's really a big question mark. Was she mixed race? Was she not? She wasn't black. We know that. But she might have been part black. Absolutely. That's absolutely within the realm of possibility based on the academic research. So, you know, if people don't want to engage with that, the research, that expert research, that's not really a me problem. That's a them problem. (laughs) What a spin. Uh, That is a spin for the ages. It's not really a me problem. It's a them problem. And it's interesting now that when white people speak up about race swapping and their characters being taken or changed or shifted, it's silence, radio silence, in fact. But now you've pissed off a different group of people. You've pissed off Egyptians and Greeks, and they are coming to bat. We even have an Egyptian lawyer who is trying to sue the producers of Queen Cleopatra for having depicted her in this light. Now, we will see what happens. What I find interesting is that she makes these arguments that they are trying to colonize and remove history. Now, I've not heard Egyptians saying we're not a part of Africa. I've not heard them say that they want to separate the country from the continent. In fact, all I've heard them say is that if you're going to tell part of our country's history, you better tell it right. Because often these ideas can be perpetuated and shifted. And even though you've watched this in a a Netflix show that somebody has created with their own bias, you will start to believe that, in fact, Queen Cleopatra was a black woman. Not only that, not only a black woman but uh, a feminist, uh, a mother of nations. (laughs) That's what you'll start to believe if you watch the wrong history. So we must be careful in our depictions of historical figures, historical facts, historical events, and make sure we stay true to 
what actually happened. Because it's totally fine to have, you know, beliefs and biases towards these things. But to package those beliefs and biases as being real is a completely different story. Now, they're going to defend this until they die and say that this is okay, that this is a win for blackness and the people who are against this are, in fact, racist. But I've heard nothing to back that claim. All I've heard is that there are people concerned about the true depiction of their history, as they should be. Because if we don't tell history correctly, then we have nothing to go on. We have nothing to reference. We have nothing to rely on as far as human nature, how these events play out, what we should look out for. It's very important that we keep the integrity of what actually happened in our world, or we have nothing. We have no knowledge. So if you want a place that's going to actually uphold history and maybe give you a deep dive into the lives of people like uh, Queen Cleopatra or Queen Charlotte of uh, mecklenburg Straitlitz, you can check out PragerU.com and my show, Unapologetic Live. We go in-depth on some of these topics as we see these characters continuously race race swapped. You can go to PragerU.com, and if you'd like to support our work, go to PragerU.com donate. Just when you thought it couldn't get any better, Mike Lindell with MyPillow is launching the MyPillow 2.0. When Mike invented MyPillow, it had everything you could ever want in a pillow. Now, nearly 20 years later, he discovered a new technology that makes it even better. The MyPillow 2.0 has the patented adjustable fill of the original MyPillow, and now with a brand new fabric that is made with a temperature-regulating thread. The MyPillow 2.0 is the softest, smoothest, and coolest pillow you'll ever own. For my listeners, the MyPillow 2.0 is buy one, get one free offer with promo code Prager. MyPillow 2.0 temperature-regulating technology is 100% made in the USA and comes with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Just go to MyPillow.com and click on the Radio Listener's Square to the buy one, get one free offer. Enter promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 to get your MyPillow 2.0 now. All right, we're back. I'm your guest host, Amla Epinobi. I wanted to take this uh, moment to dispel some myths that have been circulating since early March surrounding what's happening in Tennessee with this drag show bill. I'm sure you've heard this because the news has been consumed with uh, drag queens and drag shows. And I want to talk about where this sparked, what bills have actually uh, stated surrounding this idea of drag shows and uh, specifically drag shows in public and in front of children, and the many celebrities who've decided to come to bat for drag queens and defend something that does not need defending. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this is that most recently, Charlize Theron, or Charlize Theron, a very uh, popular actress, we call her probably an A-list celebrity, has come out in defense of drag queens doing a campaign for uh, an organization that is defending them. And she says, quote, I will F anybody up. That's the quote, who tries to mess with drag queens. And she's specifically referencing what's going on in Tennessee with this drag bill. Not only have we had Charlize Theron uh, make a video about this, Kevin Bacon and his wife decided to make a video of them dancing 
in a shirt that says drag is a right. <laughs> drag is a right. Yes, your, your beloved Kevin Bacon thinks that dressing up in drag is a right. Uh, we've also had Lizzo, a famous singer, Kelsey Ballerini, a famous country artist, and Maren Morris, also a famous country artist, come to uh, Tennessee in particular to do shows on their tours and feature drag queens and political statements in their shows. Maren Morris specifically getting on stage saying that she She's introduced her young son to a bunch of drag queens and tells the uh, Tennessee government to please arrest her for having uh, shown these drag queens to her son. What an interesting hill to die on (laughs) that these celebrities are choosing to come to bat for drag queens. And it gets even more interesting when you recognize that the Tennessee bill in question does not, in fact, ban drag performances. This is the narrative that we've gotten. We're banning drag queens. We're not allowing these people to make money, to perform their art, to be creative as being men who dress up as women or women who impersonate males. We've essentially banned their profession. And you'll come to find upon reading this bill that that is not at all true. In fact, the only thing that is being banned is these sexualized performances happening in public and more specifically in front of children. If you go and read, it says, uh, quote, adult cabaret performance, end quote, means a performance in a location other than an adult cabaret that features topless dancers, go-go dancers, exotic dancers, strippers, male or female impersonators who provide entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest, and prurient means a sexual in nature. So if you are a male or female impersonator who provides entertainment that appeals to a prurient interest, or similar entertainers, regardless of whether or not performed for consideration. So this bill is essentially saying, all of you have the right to exist. You can dress and drag. You can be a male who impersonates females or a female who impersonates males. Just don't go around dancing in a sexual manner in public or in front of children. That is all that is being stated here. And to think that this has been spun into oblivion. (laughs) And now we are hearing from the likes of Kelsey Ballerini and Charlize Theron and Maren Morris, Lizzo, Kevin Bacon even, that drag is a right and that we need to protect, protect drag queens. Tells me two things. Either A, they are willingly distorting the truth and distorting reality here for the sake of their own agenda and to virtue signal and feel like they are doing something good for the world, or B, they care so little about the issue at hand that they didn't even bother to read the bill that was written in Tennessee. It's either A or B. So they are going to exist in those two camps. I have a feeling it's, it's more B than A, that they didn't even bother to look into the bill that they are so adamantly against and instead chose to virtue signal on the internet in these often, I guess, violent calls to defend drag queens. And as far as I'm concerned, nobody has done anything but that. We've defended children, we've defended their innocence, and we've also said, hey, if you want to dress in drag, you're allowed to do that. I watched Mrs. Doubtfire as a kid, <laughs> which uh, we all remember as being Robin Williams dressing in drag for the majority of the movie. There are sane ways to do that. There are innocent ways to do it. It's certainly not dressing up as a stripper and dancing in front of children. So I thought I'd clear the air on that. If you'd like to hear more from me, you can go to PragerU.com and check out my podcast, Unapologetic Live. That's PragerU.com. Prurient. 
<laughs> Prurient. Prurient. <laughs> Hard one to pronounce, people. <laughs> Prurient. All right. Good morning, everybody. I'm your sit-in host, Amala Epinobi of PragerU. For those of you who don't know me, I am 22 years old. I've been working for PragerU for a little over two years now and came to this place by being a, a former leftist and realizing maybe leftism was not for me. Now I host a right of center podcast titled Unapologetic Live that you can check out on all podcast platforms. Now, we ended off the last hour talking about this now developing story about Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz and Senator Marsha Blackburn, who are now coming after Bud Light with an investigation and, and, and a direct complaint. Uh, because of what they did with Dylan Mulvaney. I'm sure you've all been hearing the word Dylan Mulvaney, the, the, the name Dylan Mulvaney all over the news. Dylan Mulvaney is a trans activist and content creator who is most famous on a platform uh, known as TikTok, where he posts his Days of Girlhood series, where every day he checks in with the audience to let them know how his journey of girlhood is going. And Dennis is very, uh, I shouldn't say Dennis, Dylan is very, Dennis would not like that slip up. Dylan is very purposeful in using the phrase girlhood rather than womanhood and even says in a video that girlhood is a purposeful choice because Dylan does not feel like a woman and in fact thinks that woman is too strong of a word to define where Dylan is. Now I could be charitable and say I get it. Dylan is trying to transform himself into a woman and feels as though he has been a woman his entire life. So if I'm being charitable, maybe he wants those days of girlhood that he missed in his childhood and is now trying to take that back in adulthood. And that is why he has coined this phrase, days of girlhood. If I wasn't being charitable, I'd say that there's a distinct way of marketing to young people who are particularly susceptible to these ideas by saying girlhood rather than womanhood. But I won't make a direct judgment. Those are just two ways you can interpret the situation. Now, Senator Cruz and Marsha Blackburn are saying they want to launch an investigation into Bud Light and have Anheuser-Busch really bear the brunt of doing this and is basically accusing them of marketing their beer to a young audience by having a sponsorship uh, for Dylan Mulvaney. Now, the article here from HuffPost says... Cruz and Blackburn focused their complaint on the title of Mulvaney's TikTok series, Days of Girlhood, and used the word girl uh, and her use of the word girl elsewhere. Quote, the use of the phrase girlhood is not a slip of the tongue, but rather an emblematic emblematic of the series uh, of Dylan Mulvaney's online content that has specifically targeted and marketed to and attracted an audience of young people who are well below the legal drinking age in the United States. So that's the argument that they're making for this complaint. And I could see maybe the, the premise of this argument being something that is tangible and that they could actually find a basis for. But Dylan Mulvaney does have a very wide audience. We're talking about millions of people that follow his journey and his Days of Girlhood series, many of whom are also adults. I think it's going to be hard to sort of blame the 
company, Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light, for the audience of, of Dylan Mulvaney, but we'll see how this goes. They've also said if you're not willing to launch a full-scale investigation into this claim, then just publicly denounce and renounce your affiliation with Dylan Mulvaney. So a little bit of trickery there. If you're not going to fully go through with this investigation, just come out and say that you'll no longer associate with Dylan Mulvaney. I don't know that I agree with this tactic used by uh, Ted Cruz and Senator Marsha Blackburn. I think it's better that we in this marketplace of ideas and just the general marketplace where we use our money, it's better that we just don't support companies that fail to support our values. We should leave them at the door and find other companies to support. It becomes increasingly difficult when you have corporations like Anheuser-Busch that own several, several uh, breweries and beer companies where it can often become hard to find a company to support or find a brand to support. And I can understand that frustration. Nowadays, if you're going around searching for products, you are more often than not going to find a corporation that is supporting woke ideology. I used to love shopping at Target all the time, and I no longer find myself doing that because of Target's outright support and endorsement of a lot of the LGBTQ plus agenda that is happening in our country right now. Target at one point was even selling chest binders for young children in their stores. And for those of you who don't know what chest binders are, they are essentially bras that young women who want to be boys can wear to hide their cleavage, to hide their chest, and sort of suppress that and make them look more male. At one point, Target had partnered with a company that was selling chest binders, and many said that this was uh, a good opportunity for young children to buy them without their parents' knowledge. It wasn't Target's direct endorsement of that sort of behavior, but to sell those sorts of products insinuates uh, as much. So it can be hard when you're looking for people to support, companies to support, products to support, to find one that is even willing to be neutral, let alone back your values. And I was most recently confronted with this problem on a recent project that I've been working with uh, and working on at PragerU, and it's a new short documentary that is coming out in June titled Unwoke Inc., or Unwoke Incorporated, where I essentially traveled around the country to find people who were starting to build alternatives and to create alternative products for us to purchase as not even just conservatives, but just as reasonable people who maybe don't want to endorse some of the broader political claims that are being made by these companies. So I interviewed throughout the course of this documentary Vivek Ramaswamy, who is starting Strive Management, which is an asset management firm that supports conservative values and free thinking. I interviewed Amanda Ensing, who has Elevate Beauty, which is a beauty and makeup brand that supports conservative Christian values. I interviewed Jonathan Isaac of the Orlando Magic, who you all know from the famous moment where he stood for the national anthem rather than kneeling like the rest of his teammates. And he now is coming out with his own sports apparel brand that he's working on. We've also featured Jeremy Boring, the creator of Daily Wire, who you all know and love, who has also started Jeremy's Razors as a competitive 
company that goes against Harry's razors and some of the left-leaning values that they stand for, and Mike Ferris, who created Patrick Henry College, which is a college that is now rivaling any other university or institution in education, which is also supporting a Christian conservative viewpoint. So it's important that we find the people who are supporting the values that we hold near and dear to our hearts, and that when we do, we support them in any way we can. So that documentary is going to come out in June. If you all would like to see it, you can find it at PragerU.com. When we find these products and we support these companies, we really do make a difference. I think we all watched and maybe were shocked by what happened with Bud Light. When I first heard the story of Bud Light sponsoring Dylan Mulvaney, I thought, okay, well, there's another one. And since then, Dylan Mulvaney himself has been sponsored by the likes of Maybelline and Nike Women's Wear. And it's just unbelievable, the sort of upside-down clown world that we're living in, where instead of giving jobs to real women, we are passing on those opportunities to men who are pretending to be us. Uh, but I digress. I saw these things and I thought, this is just par for the course. We're going to continue to see things like this. You can... Uh, be of sound mind and see these things and just decide, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to buy Bud Light. I wasn't a Bud Light consumer before Dylan Mulvaney was sponsored. I will not be a Bud Light consumer after. As I always say on my show, now I'm going to not buy Bud Light even harder. <laughs> and that's the joke we make when these companies pop up, because I am rarely ever a patron of them in the first place. But to see so many people take issue with this and go, you know what, We're going to cause an uproar. We're going to talk about this. We're going to market this to the public and let them know that this is happening. But we're also just going to encourage them. Don't buy from Bud Light. They lost billions of dollars. I think seven to eight billion dollars this company lost, all because we decided to use our voices and vote with our wallets and say, you know what? We're not going to support this company anymore. And if we have the power to do that with Bud Light, which I know is owned by Anheuser-Busch and maybe is not so much of a hit on their parent company, but we can do it with anybody. So think about the buying power that you truly have in not just the current marketplace, but the market of ideas. And let these companies know that they should do their jobs, which for Anheuser-Busch and Bud Light was to brew beer, not to endorse a highly controversial issue of allowing people to transition and endorsing the idea that men can be women. If you'd like to hear more about that, you can go to PragerU.com, check out my podcast, Unapologetic Live, and don't forget that documentary, Unwoke Inc., is coming out in June. Don't miss it. Host to Amala Benobi. I think we're going to take a call now from Glenn in Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Hi, man. Uh, how you doing? So, told the call screener, and I, I called you uh, maybe three or four months ago when you set in for Mr. Prager, and I called about the first hour situation with the uh, with the white woman and the African American. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, I wanted to get your take on this, and uh, so I'm, I'm younger. I'm, I'm Latino. And what I've noticed is, is I brought this up to, I've, I've said this to uh, Larry Elder when he was on the radio, called his show in, and I try to get you guys' perspective is coming from, uh, I don't know if you call it black culture or African-American culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the, 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 the situation at hand is, what, what I notice is in the black culture is young men uh, coming out of junior high, out of high school, 
another example uh, would be uh, the, the NBA player last week with the gun, and he he got suspended, right? Mm-hmm. And the people are in an uproar about it. And why why would he do that? Right? Why why he he he's worth millions of dollars and all this stuff, right? Well, I go back to black culture and young African Americans coming out of junior high or high school. They're they're um, the, the people who they put up on a pedestal, Tupac Shakur, Snoop Doggy Dog. They they want to emulate those people. So it kind of comes hand in hand, the culture with the behavior and the conduct later in life. I rare, I don't know if I've ever met a young African-American that said to me, oh, I'm, I'm trying to be a, aspire to be like Larry Elder. I want right. to aspire to be like Clarence Thomas. And so who, who, who they aspire to be is people like Snoop Doggy Dog. I'll give Tupac Shakur as an example. Uh, very successful. I mean, Tupac, as far as the hip-hop community and selling records, was was transcendent, right. but he, he, he died young. He was murdered, and that's the culture that they're in, and that's what I'm seeing from an outsider. I just wanted to get your perspective on this, and that's why in the instance with the young white woman in the first hour you were speaking, is it doesn't matter any of the situations, even when they're wrong, they still look at themselves as victims because of the way they were raised. That's what I'm seeing, and I just wanted to get your take on this. Yeah, Glenn, thank you so much for your call. I really appreciate it. When I hear stories like that, I do often think about the cultural perspective and and what is being really fed to young minds, and in particular young African-American minds in this country. We are starved for good role models, and it's sort of a chicken or the egg thing. Is Is that just simply what black culture is, and we've created the problem for ourselves, or is that what's being propagated now? These young children are victims of just the junk food that their brains are being fed. I wouldn't even begin to give an answer to that, but what you're saying is really true. I forget which, uh, there was a black man who used to travel around to different schools and give speeches, and I forget what his name is, but he he said a through line in so many of the stories that he had from going around and speaking to different schools is that he would go to predominantly white schools and ask these children what they wanted to be. And you would hear, you know, doctor, lawyer, business owner, police officer, all these different answers. And when he went to predominantly black schools and asked these children what they wanted to be, it was, I want to be in the NFL. I want to be an NBA player. I want to be a rapper. And these are fine aspirations, I, I presume, but statistically are just not likely whatsoever. I think NBA and NFL a lot better than wanting to be a rapper, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. We won't get into that right now. But you can tell that there is a deeply set cultural influence within these two different communities. And what you see and what you take in, much like what you eat, is what you are. And if young black children are watching the likes of, you know, Tupac, Notorious B.I.G., Cardi B., Meg The Stallion, Nicki Minaj. It's no wonder that, A, they're going to be influenced by these people and want to lead lives that are similar, but also, B, they'll get into a lot of the negative aspects of these lives. When Cardi B and Nicki Minaj are rapping to you, they're not telling you how to run a successful business. They're not telling you how to bolster your career. They're not telling you how to build a name for yourself. They're telling you what sex acts they do. They're telling you the sort of the violent encounters they get into. They're telling you how many men they've been with. And that's the takeaway from the message that a lot of young black children are getting on a daily basis. And if your mind is is constantly being inundated with these things, that is what you think of. You are what you surround yourself with. And 
when you couple that with a culture of victimhood and this idea that nothing that goes wrong in your, is your fault and you constantly have this crutch of systemic racism, of oppression and of discrimination to rely on, there is a recipe for disaster that is sitting right there in your life because you will fail at every endeavor you take on because you are searching for the wrong things, you are looking for the wrong things and you are aspiring to be the wrong things. And then when those endeavors and fail, which they are bound to, just statistically speaking, with all these kids who want to be NFL, NBA, rappers, then you have something to blame. And it's it didn't happen for me because the system is against me. I got arrested because police officers are racist. I'm now down and out and I make no money because nobody wants to hire a, a black man. Or you just, you know, insert XYZ and there is an excuse. And that excuse is lying and contingent upon this idea that you are a victim simply by virtue of being born the way that you are born. So there's a lot of problems. And yes, culture is one of them. I remember recently, and, and I, I want to say it was late last year, a rapper by the name of Takeoff, who was in this very popular group, the Migos, was killed at 28 years old. And obviously we have these views of what rappers are. They're, they're violent, they're, you know, screaming expletives all the time. But this guy, for the most part, was a very quiet, mild-mannered man who, who minded his own business, but surrounded himself with the wrong type of people and ended up being shot in a bowling alley at 28 years old. And this is a man with millions of dollars, gold chains, all the women he wants, whatever, gone at 28 years old. Because you are exactly who you surround yourself with. You end your life with those people that you surround themselves with. And I'll think of an, even, an example that's outside of black culture, because this is true for anybody of any race. And I don't want to make this sound like this is a specifically black problem. Uh, who was the man in San Francisco who recently died? I believe his name is Bob Lee. And he was a big tech guru guy, had made a bunch of money in tech, uh, working for a company that he had built, and he was stabbed to death in the streets of San Francisco. Yeah, Bob Lee is his name. He was stabbed to death in the streets of San Francisco. And everybody said, oh, well, that's just San Francisco. You know, he was out late at night. He was probably surrounded some homeless person, you know, stabbed him, and that was what happened. Come to find out, there's been more uh, stuff about this story coming out. He was stabbed by somebody that he knew, and it came out that he's been involved in this sort of underground sexual ring thing that he was doing with other successful individuals called The Lifestyle, that was the name of their group, where they were engaging in just debauchery and a, a lot of things that I think most normal people wouldn't imagine. And one of those people that he was involved with ended up taking his life. Now, it's not to say, you know, had he not done this, he wouldn't have been killed. But think about who you surround yourself with. And you never know what's going to happen. Surround yourself with bad and bad will come to you. Uh, we talk more in depth about this at PragerU.com and specifically at my podcast, Unapologetic Live. You can check that out. And Glenn, thank you for your call. A very important point that should be made. You are what you eat. You are what you see. You hear. You think. You feel. We'll be back. Alright, good morning. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi. We're going to get into talking deeper about that idea of community and specifically the black community as we did in the last segment. And I make the point that you are everything that you surround yourself with. That can be the news that you read in the morning, the entertainment that you like, the music you listen to, especially the friends and people that you surround yourself with. But I want to dive deeper into this sort of conundrum that I've had recently of identifying things as communities. We have this 
I guess, proclivity to do it, where we want to be parts of communities, the black community, the LGBTQ plus community, the trans community, the white community, the Hispanic community, all of these different things. And I find myself every time I hear the phrase black community, even though technically I am a part of that and would constitute a a member of the black community, something in me says no. We should not have these phrases. We should not have these groups because they don't really mean anything. And the idea of calling it a community sort of insinuates that there is a baseline that we all adhere to. Like we'd all uh, respond to situations the very same as one another simply by virtue of being members of the black community. I find it very similar with the LGBTQ plus community, that it makes absolutely no sense to lump in lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, whatever letter from the alphabet you want nowadays, because all 26, I think, are included. It makes no sense to lump them all into one group together. Why? Because they have a sexuality that is different from heterosexual, because they have a different, you know, gender expression or gender identity, I think is what they call it now. Why should all of those people be lumped in together? Do they think the same? Would they answer questions the same? If you presented them all with the same situation, would they have the same response? The answer is no. Everybody would be different, as we are all unique individuals, but yet we feel the need to lump ourselves into this idea of community. And I think it's partially because we all want to belong somewhere, and we all want to have groups, and we all want to have friends and a community, and this, it's the easiest way to say that you have one to just look at your identity markers and these superficial characteristics and say, well, thank you. Now I can stamp you with this, with this claim of community. Maybe it's also because we're tribalistic and we feel the need to recognize patterns within individuals and then really sort them and organize them based on those patterns. But as this goes on and as the calls for community get deeper and more broad, <laughs> it makes no sense to me. You cannot find me another black person that is a photocopy of myself and that would think the same exact things as I do, say the exact exact same things as I do, feel the exact same way that I do. But now we've labeled ourselves as a community and in a sense placed ourselves in this idea that we are a monolith and it's happening all over the place. And I'll step outside of maybe the political zeitgeist and talk about something recently that I've been listening to. I was listening to a video on YouTube, uh, a philosophy video about Stoicism. And they referred to some of the great Stoics and people who use Stoicism in their daily lives today as the Stoic community. And I thought that is so strange to me. I get it. We all have a similar belief, so we lump ourselves in communities. But if you asked four Stoics how they would respond to one situation, I guarantee you, you'd nearly always get four different answers. So this idea of community is a beautiful thing, and I grade it. It's all, you know, kumbaya, we get to be friends with each other, and we share these characteristics. But to me, it increasingly means nothing. So I'm, I'm leaving communities behind. I am just me as an individual, and uh, we can talk on an issue-by-issue basis about how I feel. Nobody's a monolith, and hopefully we'll step out of these tribalistic ways that we have and start to view people as unique individuals and, and take their opinions, values, and morals that way. The Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. 
Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolf. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Back for our final hour. I'm your guest host, Amla Epinovia of PragerU. You can check me out by going to PragerU.com or finding my podcast, Unapologetic Live. So many of you are calling, and I love engaging one on one with you. So let's take another call from Jane in Woodland, California. Let's see. Oh, I am so happy you were talking about this. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Jane. I, oh, well, because I am very isolated because of this. I moved. I won't go into the story. Mm-hmm. Why? And there's, I'm a senior, and in my complex, there's uh, primarily Hispanic people. They're very nice, but they do not talk to me. First of all, they don't speak English. Mm. They identify with Mexico. My attendant who's Hispanic and speaks English, you know, talks about how we stole the land from Mexico. They don't like us. You know, there's a plot among some people to try to get the land back. And I don't have friends. I can't make friends because, like, they'll invite their family over for barbecues because we have a lot of outdoor things. Mm -hmm. And they don't include me, you know. Of course, they don't speak English. Right, so there might not be much conversation to be had. (laughs) No, it's very. I've been very depressed since I've moved here, Mm. and I don't have the resources to move somewhere else. And you know, this is a globalist plot. You know, divide and conquer. So everybody hates each other. You know. Now here's another point. You don't hear white people saying we're the 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 white group because I identify as a white because then we're white supremacists. So right. we can't win. Right, Jane. Thank now, you. I will tell you what I do, okay, mm-hmm. uh, as a turnaround to get back at this whole thing. On um, all my papers, a lot of which are government, and whenever you go on the Internet, nowadays they write gender instead of sex. There's no more male and female. You just gender. Right. And I don't know if you hear my little guys in the background chirping. I do. So I write, because they're always trying to get all this personal information. I'm just trying to do something, and i got to put all this personal information, you know, age, whatever, gender. So I write parakeet. 
So, guys, let's all do this. Okay, yes. Jane, thank you so much for your call. I guess you're, you're all going to be Therians, that, that animal species community that we talked about before. Jane's writing Parakeet. You guys you use your imagination to write whatever it is in this, uh, in this old gender slot. It is a very uh, unfortunate situation to, to live somewhere and not feel a sense of community with the people that you, you live with. So my heart does go out to you. I, I can't imagine living around people that you, know, you can't communicate with and I wish there was a, a easier way to bridge that gap. It seems like language learning is going to be the only option for uh, either party involved in, in your community, and that's sad to hear. Even sadder to hear than, than the language barrier, which I think in many ways can be, you know, we, we can build a bridge across that, is the racism and the idea that by virtue of being white, you've somehow stolen or, or taken something from them. That's very sad, and it, it's a sad thing to believe on, on any anyone's part to label an entire group. And the point that you make, that white people never identify as part of a white community or say they're proud to be part of a white community, is something that I've been saying for so long. And of course, it doesn't land because white people are the uh, the pinatas of the modern age. You can beat them down, you can say whatever you want, you can be racist towards them, and nobody cares. And God forbid they take their own agency into their hands and start doing what other communities are doing. You will never hear somebody say white is powerful, or I am a white king or a white queen. If uh, Can you imagine what would happen to a white person who came out and said that? Maybe I should use my biracial superpowers to start doing that because I am a half-black, half-white woman. Maybe I should start identifying as a white queen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get a, get a white pride shirt and see how that lands for people because they won't be able to come after me because the, I can then accuse them of racism. I think it's all about strategy, you know? While they're playing checkers, we play chess. I'm in a very uni- unique cultural position to take on, <laughs> to take on this, uh, this power that I have. Yes, maybe maybe a maybe a white history month. Although the 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 left would all argue that I guess every month is white history month. That's the big the big saying that they that they have right now. You'll never hear it. <laughs> Sean is in my ear saying, "What about, you know, what about a white pride month or white pride night at Dodger Stadium?" No, instead, we have LGBTQ Pride Month and all this stuff, and we're we're forcing the players to wear rainbow patches on their on their uniforms. It's just ridiculous. You know what? Rather than making a white movement to match the black, the Hispanic, and the LGBTQ movement, I would like to see all of them disbanded. I would like to see everything go. I don't need to hear that black is beautiful or being black makes me a queen or I should feel so much pride in my blackness because it means nothing. Your sexuality means nothing. The the, the uh, being Hispanic means nothing outside of your you know your cultural bond that you have with other people who maybe share that background. There is no reason to be wearing your race on a t-shirt talking about how proud you are to be that it's just unbelievable the times that we are living in right now we're gonna take another call if we've got time here let's hear from rick in northridge california hi rick how are you uh, i'm good I'm, I'm a, i was afraid you were gonna call on me <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I was gonna I, I when i heard you talking i was thinking you could be the black face of white queen <laughs> You know, like Larry Elder was the uh, black case of white. Exactly supremacy. right. Exactly right. Maybe that is the movement that I need to take on. <laughs> they- but what you're talking about with the community stuff is it's really important. Um, 
On a, you know, I, I don't know, I'm on a spiritual level, uh, you, you know, the community stuff, the cultural stuff, it's all conditioning. It, mm. It's it's just conditioning. It's it's nothing. If if uh, whatever environment we're put into, we're going to adopt those mores, those uh, you, you know, those features of the culture, and, and we're going to identify with that, and and that's going to be us. And it's just artificial. It's it's nothing. Yeah. It's, uh, I- and that's pretty. That's pretty much. Uh, Pretty much. I mean, the politicians just want to use it to divide us, like somebody said, divide and conquer. Um, And the Democrats are really good at that, unfortunately. I do agree with you, Rick, and thank you for your call. It is a very easy way, and and you'll find that oftentimes when the the election cycle comes about, which we're about to experience in, in just a little bit, and we're already sort of in the throes of, you'll even find your politicians sort of breaking us down into these communities and saying, well, how can we get more from the Hispanic community? How can we get more from the black community? And you'll watch as they tap dance and pander to what they think your community means. And to me, it is just so degrading to watch these politicians engage in this sort of behavior. You'll all remember our current president, President Biden, say, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black and sort of code switch into what he think what he thinks black people speak like. And that's a way to engage with the black community. Or when uh, Jill Biden, or we must call her Dr. Jill Biden, said that went to the Hispanic community and started talking about tacos and quesadillas and all of this other stuff, because that is truly how they view you. They've taken down. So if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. You ain't black. We all heard it there. Because they put us in these little groups, these little communities, and they go, well, what do I know about black people? Well, I know that they say axe instead of ask. I know that they say the word ain't a lot. Faux show. And let me just let me just throw those words into a few of my speeches and maybe black people will feel as though I identify with them. What do we know about Hispanics? Uh, you know, well, we've got that fast food chain, Taco Bell. Why don't I start mentioning tacos when I'm going and speaking to a predominantly Hispanic audience? That'll be sure to win them over. That'll make them feel like we know who they are. Couldn't be farther from the truth, but yet it somehow tricks people. I still cannot believe to hear from some people who go, well, because I'm, I'm black, obviously I got to vote Democrat. You know, that's just the, the party of our people. That's what we have to do. I can't wait for the moment where people get up and and wake up from that and decide, you know what, I'm going to start voting and thinking as an individual and i'm not going to let these disgusting pander plays play to my intelligence and really insult my intelligence because that's what they're doing let's not allow that and let's leave the communities behind and start thinking about who we are as individuals what our values are and what we truly think you can check me out by going to prageru.com if you want to hear more about these ideas i rant like this on a daily basis believe it or not i know you guys wouldn't want to hear this on a daily basis but this is what i eat and breathe. <laughs> so you can check that out at PragerU.com and seeing my podcast, Unapologetic Live. It's on all podcast platforms, predominantly on YouTube. So check me out there. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing, go to PragerU.com slash donate. We're back. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi from PragerU. I love fielding calls from you all. So we are going to take some more calls. This one's been on the line for quite some time. Thank you for waiting. Jennifer from Los Angeles, California. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? 
Good. How are you? You're can... fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, regarding the term community or the, um, I think it's a tool of the left to um, kind of illustrate that what they think, and I think it's fallacious that there's, for example, systemic racism. If you say something negative about a black, you are therefore um, insulting an entire community. And that just confirms that there's systemic racism mm. or the same with um, the gender. And it's, it's just, um, well, I won't use an expletive. It's uh, <laughs> frustrating. Yes. Thank you, Jennifer, for your call. Uh, we keep finding more and more layers to how the terms uh, community and how these breaking us down and fracturing us into communities is being used against us. And it's so interesting that we, every time we, we bring this up, it gets deeper and deeper. Uh, Jennifer makes the point that if you offend one black person, you've now offended the entire black community and people now have the power to speak on behalf of all, which is something we spoke about earlier. And it, it is a, just a really divisive way to do to go about things that you can take this entire group of people and say you have now offended the entire group <laughs> and i guess we're all bestowed with the power to speak on behalf of the entire group we haven't quite figured out the hierarchy of who exactly gets to speak on behalf of the black community but it is a powerful tool to label people as bigots or being anti a certain community how often have you all heard the term anti-black or anti-LGBT, or anti-trans. It always is followed by community, for the most part. Now, here's a brilliant quote that Sean brought over to me uh, that Dennis often uh, refers to from Viktor Frankl, A Man's Search for Meaning, his book. It says, From all this we may learn that there are two races of men in this world, but only these two, the race of the decent man and the race of the indecent man. Both are found everywhere. They penetrate into all groups of society. No group consists entirely of decent or indecent people. And that is gorgeous. You know, I, it's so great to look back at, you know, historical writings and just great people who have managed to distill what are babbling, ranty thoughts in my brain into something far beautiful that just stands the test of time and is timeless. That is a timeless quote. For all of human existence, this will be true uh, in, in its essence. The race of the decent men and the race of the indecent men. And that's what we're constantly battling back and forth with. So as Sean said, let's, let's make the community of good people, of decent people who are constantly trying to have, you know, the best intent and the best outcome. Intent is nothing without outcomes, I must say. <laughs> we, we, we need to make that point. Uh, let's see. We'll take another call here from Mike in Staten Island, New York. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hi. Good afternoon. Um, you pronounce your name Amala? Uh, it's Amala, like Kamala without the K. <laughs> oh, okay. I got that mixed up. I got that messed up twice. No so, worries. Thank you, Amala. So, so good to speak. Thank you. What you calling for, Mike? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going before we go. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that I, I do identify with you exactly, or maybe not exactly, where I actually came from, like, a mixed family, too, as well. My, mm -hmm. my father was white, uh, German-Italian. My mother uh, was black. Uh, as, as we used to say back in the day, Afro-American, but also part Native American as well. So I come from, like, you know, quite a big mix of 
like lots and lots of stuff. Right. And that kind of that kind of thing was like pretty pretty uncommon back in the day when I was growing up. And I'm actually very happy to see that there are actually more uh, you know mixed couples out there. You know, out there people that are just um, coming together. They're finding something common with each other, regardless of their skin color. And that's obviously how my mom and dad were. God rest their soul. Right. You know, and then and then the people have people like yourself. And I don't hear this, I ne- never heard this back in the day where you actually openly speak about your um, your culture, your ethnicity. You know, because there always used to be that you had to be one way, or you had to be another way. There there could never be like a third way. Mm. You know, someone would look at you and say, "Well, wait a minute, you have." All these features. You have a big nose, big lips, right? You must be black. Wrong. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, and then they'll say, oh, you're so white, you're so faint, you know, you're, you're calling yourself as, as, you're passing yourself as black now. Maybe you're like Puerto Rican. No. No, I am like who I say I am. I, I, when I check a box of like a form, I want to fill out and says, what's your um, background? If it says either other or says do not answer, I always check off like either one because uh, I don't have to tell people, I should never have to tell people what my ethnicity is. Because my ethnicity is not defined in who I am. If I'm playing for fun or a job or a loan or, you know, just to you know, buy something, whatever. Uh, you know, it, there shouldn't have to be something to define who you are. But I also feel bad when people are afraid to accept and love who they are. Because then when you, when you do that, then you, nobody can take your race and they, and they could depower you. And that's what I was telling your um, call screener before. People nowadays, they're using the group of people together, putting them in, in classes and groups. And it's a way to not not to make people feel good about themselves, but to create an army. In my personal opinion, mm. an army, yeah, an army that would allow certain people up at the top to be empowered that they can enact policy. Because you know they'll say like you know well we have this many people, we have a hundred thousand people, well those hundred thousand followers, okay, and you know maybe you uh, want to you know stay in office a little longer, maybe you need like a few extra votes. You know I can swing that your way. But if you don't agree with what I say, I can probably have people come in and, uh, you know, turn things around, make things ugly for you. Right, like, Mike. Know, maybe cause yeah. the street. Thank you. And, Thank you for I calling. Hate- I want to I want to speak to a couple of the points that you you made there. I think with with race, you spoke to this sort of struggle that many have of what do I put down on the sheet? What do I identify with? I have all these different things in my background. I, I think it comes down to facts and objectivity you know when i was a kid i so often was asked which which race do you identify with meaning that of the black and white race that i came from i'm meant to pick one that i identify with more and i was told you know many many biracial people just identify as black what do you mean just identify as black i can't make up reality i am half white and i am half black there is no reason to identify with one side over the other for both would be non-factual it's just not factual i am half white i I'm half black. And the the issue is we're not viewing race with objectivity anymore. We simply just are what we are. And I would love to just see it go away and we'd be just a nation of others on that little sheet that you pick out. We are a nation of others. That is what it is. Your race means nothing. And that perpetual struggle that we go through of trying to decide what do we identify with, who are we, is all for nothing. It really is all for nothing. There are much deeper philosophical battles to engage with in your life and figuring out your meaning and who you are than what your race is and what box you check on an application. And that goes back to Victor Frankl's quote of, 
we are there are indecent and decent people you should spend your life trying to make yourself a decent person not figure out what race you identify with now i talk more at length about this at prageru.com and on my podcast on apologetic live you'll find a, a bunch of like-minded people who are also going back and forth on some of these ideas we'll talk more about what mike had to say in this next coming segment the dennis prager show all right, we're back. I'm your guest host, Amla Evanobi. And we had a call from Mike in Staten Island, New York, where he spoke in depth about coming from a biracial background and this idea of seeing more and more interracial marriages and relationships in our world. And it is becoming increasingly common. In fact, so common that I think projections that some scientists have for what humans are going to look like decades from now is just a, a mix of just a light brown color because so many people of different races are coming together and bonding in these relationships and uh, leading to marriage and having children. And it's interesting. I saw a video the other day of a young woman talking about interracial relationships. And her view of interracial relationships was very narrow. Uh, the, the interracial relationships that she was referring to were ones with a white person and whatever other race on the other end. And she spoke about the fact that she came from an interracial marriage, a black and white interracial marriage, and that the white person of an interracial couple has a responsibility to learn about the racism of the other person and to learn about the uh, struggle that they go through and to acknowledge their privilege and to acknowledge that they are now dating somebody or married to somebody who does not share the same privileges that they do. It was a ridiculous commentary on interracial relationships and interracial dynamics. And I say this as somebody who is in an interracial relationship myself. It's unbelievable that even in a relationship where you have managed to quite literally display the progress that we have made as a nation, outside the bounds of judging people based on race, you must also have a race-conscious conversation about privilege and systemic racism within your relationship. Just blows my mind <laughs> that with all the progress we've made as a nation, we still have to have these race-conscious conversations. But I digress. We're going to move on. I've I recently watched a show that has been at the top of the charts for many, many people. It's a, a Netflix show called Queen Charlotte. And incidentally, it features an interracial couple and a, a fictional interracial couple, I should say, because we're going to get into the history here shortly. This is a fictional show, but it is about to hit the number one most viewed show to ever go out on Netflix. And again, it is Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story where it sort of details a fictional retelling of King George and Queen Charlotte of mecklenburg Strelitz relationship and how that dynamic happened with Queen Charlotte having moved from Germany to marry King George and how the relationship came to fruition and blossomed and all of these different things. I take issue with the fact that we've race-swapped the character who plays Queen Charlotte. Queen Charlotte is played by a black actress, I believe maybe a biracial actress in this show, Queen Charlotte. Her name is India. I forget her last name. But 
I will give them grace in saying that they have labeled this show as a piece of fiction. So they have not tried to sell us historical accuracy and say that this is factual, like Netflix recently did with their Queen Cleopatra documentary, where they tried to sell us the idea that Queen Cleopatra was in fact a black woman, an unsubstantiated idea. But now we have Queen Charlotte, who's also depicted as a black woman in this fictional tale. And it's really interesting how much they've decided to push diversity on these shows because in one line they tell you we need to talk about the history of colonialism and how black people were held down and how every country that was colonized was held down by the british empire on the other hand they're selling us shows that show black people completely integrated with the british empire in fact marrying king george (laughs) so which narrative do you want us to spin because now you have a generation of young people who after watching some fictional tales spun to them on netflix may as well go out into the world and think that queen charlotte was a black woman so were you harmed by colonialism and colonized and beaten and and you know transgressed by the the British Empire, or were black people integrated in British society and, in fact, marrying King George? (laughs) I just don't know what they want us to believe anymore. And we're going to continue to get these period dramas that have a distinct retelling of the races of people involved. And, of course, if you market it as a fiction, it's okay, but I'm just telling you, you exist on a slippery slope of having people actually believe that this is what the colonial period looked like and that black people were in fact members of the uh, uh, aristocrat society and that they were elites in the hierarchy there. So be careful, the the land you tread. We're going to talk more about Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz and sort of debunk this myth that she could have possibly been a black woman in the next next segment. I've also done so on my show, Unapologetic Live, which you can check out at youtube.com, where we go in-depth about her history and her lineage. The Dennis Prager Show. I don't think you realize. All right, we are back. I'm your guest host, Amala Epinobi, and we left off in the last segment talking about Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story, which is one of the most viewed shows to ever be put out on Netflix. It is a fictional tale of Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz and King George, and their meeting and marriage and their romance in, of course, uh, the UK as they... Uh, had King George's reign. So a lot of people are leaving this story, and of course it is a fictional tale, it's been sold to us as a fictional tale, thinking that Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz is in fact a black woman as she is depicted in this fictional tale. Now I will tell you, in looking into the history of Queen Charlotte, there is some indecisive uh, reporting about what her actual ethnicity was and what it is that she looked like. And this might have been purposeful, it comes come to find out. Now, in looking at her lineage, there is an ancestor that Queen Charlotte has that is a Moor, uh, which is a North African. But of course, North Africans have all different sorts of skin color. And this Moor ancestor that Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz has is actually 400 to 500 years removed from her time. So let's think about that. The only, quote, black 
ancestor they could find was 400 to 500 years removed from Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg-Strelitz. Now, where did this idea come that she might have been a person of color or at least somebody who was darker than a, a white-skinned individual? When, when you look back at Queen Charlotte's old portraits, of which there are many, you'll see some that clearly depict her as a white woman with white features, but there are others done by a specific portraitist that have Queen Charlotte with large lips, which many attribute to uh, being of, of African ethnicity, and a larger nose, which many attribute to being of African ethnicity, and curly hair. And these portraits were specifically painted by a portraitist of the name Sir Ellen Ramsey. He is the one who painted these portraits of, of Queen Charlotte that many now use as a, a backing to justify the fact that she is portrayed as, as black in this fictional retelling. Now, Sir Alan Ramsey, if you look into his background, is an abolitionist, and his entire family, I believe, were, were abolitionists in his time. So would it have behooved him to maybe draw Queen Charlotte in a way that would accentuate more uh, black features. It's also known that many of the uh, black citizens at the time really loved Queen Charlotte because of her depiction in these portraits and on certain coins where they thought, well, this woman looks a lot like me. Uh, a few remarked of Queen Charlotte as not being particularly beautiful, and historically she has been remarked as having mulatto features, which many view to be an offensive term that means you are mixed with something other than white, or at least that's how it was used at the time. But most historians can agree that by no means was Queen Charlotte a dark-skinned individual, as she is depicted in the show, A Bridgerton Story. And even if that were the case, and you know, the Bridgerton producers decided to take some liberties here and say, you know what? There is some historical noting that Queen Charlotte is of darker skin color and had darker features. We're going to choose to have a black actress play her. Okay. They didn't just do that, though. All of the seasons of this show, which uh, this is the third and it's a spin-off season, have featured diverse characters of all backgrounds in a time of deeply set colonialism, which is very interesting. In season one, they feature a duke and duchess who get married and the duke is biracial. In season two, they have a family during the colonial period, the Sharmas, who are from India, who move over to the UK and to England in order to marry people in elite positions <laughs> during a time of colonialism and, uh, you know, the, the colonials moving over to India and creating strife in their country. But I guess we can look over that for the sake of fiction. And now in Queen Charlotte's A Bridgerton Story, they have uh, a black woman playing Queen Charlotte. It's just interesting. And as I said before, I made the point that so often the left tries to go uh, and look at history and say we need to acknowledge all of the transgressions of, of the English and the transgressions uh, in America and that they did these horrible things to our countries that they pillaged and they raped and they colonized. But in these retellings of the colonial period, we're mixing in all of these races and telling something that did not happen. And you better believe that a lot of people are watching this and thinking that this is what 
it truly looked like in, in taking this as as truth, whether or not they mean that to be the case or not. I get that there is creative liberties that you can take and you are free to sort of display things in whatever light that you want and view history in this sort of creative lens where you change things to what maybe you think they should have been. But I take issue with just the forced diversity that we're constantly seeing with every single show that comes out. What would be great for me, I think, is if you had shows that, sure, have a bit of diversity and whatever, but let's not make the whole show about it. Let's not reference it the entire time that I'm watching. It really does ruin the experience. And for me, watching some of these fictional tales, I feel as though I have to suspend some disbelief in order to continue watching. I find myself watching these episodes and going, well, that doesn't make sense, but uh, we'll look over that. And that doesn't make sense, but let me justify it within the lens of the modern age and make it make sense. And you'll find that every piece of art that is made in this time, I think, is going to be stamped with the year 2023. And we're not going to build ourselves out of it. You'll constantly be able to know what movie was made what year, so long as we allow this woke ideology to constantly be proliferated within the storylines. We will not have any timeless tales, any classics that stand the test of time and have these through lines of just common human truths because we are so obsessed with pushing our ideology down the throats of others. A recent uh, actor who's spoken about this is Richard Dreyfus. When he was asked about the Oscars having certain diversity quotas for their films, he said it makes him want to vomit. <laughs> because art is meant to be art, and you should not tell an artist what they have to do or force diversity on them. And it's true. We are going to ruin art if we allow this agenda to constantly be pushed for us. And again, nothing will be timeless. Nothing will be a classic. Nothing will speak to these broader truths that we can all accept regardless of what background we have. It will all be stamped with the year 2023. You can check out more of my commentary because I do a segment on my show where I watch these shows so you don't have to. And I watch these movies so you don't have to. That's an unapologetic live. <laughs> Alright, we're in our final segment. I am your guest host, Amala Epinobi of PragerU. You can check out all my stuff by going to PragerU.com or searching for Unapologetic Live. I did want to mention in my ranting about uh, Queen Charlotte and all the forced diversity in movies and shows right now, it's not to say that I don't like these movies and shows. I watched Queen Charlotte, I got to the end, I won't spoil it, but I cried for these characters. Uh, there are many amazing shows that come out with these forced diversity quotas and that are still, you know, shoving the agenda down your throat in, in many different ways. I watched Hamilton, went to London and even watched it on the West End. There were fantastic depictions and, and storytellings uh, within these stories that also have, you know, a little bit of leftism injected in them. But that is Hollywood, I, I must say. It's very rare that you get a Hollywood film or TV show created without an agenda these days, which is quite sad. I long for the times where we can just allow a good story to be a good story and allow all people to enjoy them and watch without necessarily feeling any sort of infringement upon their their beliefs and their own value systems and there are many stories that are good enough to to not do that and i wish that that is what creators and artists did in this day and age that's sort of what richard dreyfus spoke to in his comments saying you can't tell an artist how to create their art or what art is acceptable 
you must allow them to be creative and to tell the stories that they want to tell in the way that they do, which is why I allow, you know, the makers of Queen Charlotte to do these things and Queen Cleopatra and all this stuff. Not without commentary, though. <laughs> we do need to set the record straight. <laughs> but I want to leave you all today with a, a message, and I think it's been a through line in everything that we've ta been talking about today, and that is that you are what you surround yourself with, the, the friends that you have, the people you're with, the content that you take in, the news that you read, and we should be very careful to guard our energy, guard our minds, and just guard who we are as people and make sure that we surround ourselves with good things. Like that Viktor Frankl quote that we read, there are two races of men, the decent ones and the indecent ones, and we should try our best, I think, to be the decent kind and surround ourselves with other decent men. It will take you farther in life than you'll ever know. I'm on a constant journey at the ripe age of 22 <laughs> to surround myself with good people and good ideas, and who knows what those ideas are going to be in, in five years. I think I'm constantly learning and taking in the world, and I'm so, so very young at this moment, as we all are, and I think if we approach every day with this idea that we want to surround ourselves with goodness, good people, good things, and hopefully some good news from time to time, we will be so much better off and so much happier in who we are. If you'd like to hear more from me after what you've heard today, you can go to PragerU.com or you can check out my podcast, Unapologetic Live. Plus, I'm on all social media as Amala Epinobi. I know it's a mouthful. Just slap your hand on the keyboard and I think I'll pop up. See you guys later. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.